So over the month of September, uh, I began to teach on the biblical concept of shalom, commonly referred to as the peace of God. And we began with what it means to be at peace in relationship with God specifically. But this morning, as we continue to think about this theme together, we're going to switch our focus to increasing our own internal experience of shalom, peace, and more than peace, well-being or wellness. Shalom, as I've explained over the last several weeks, is, is really about our personal sense of peace and wellness. It's a state of abundance and blessing, a personal state of well-being in which we're, we're physically, emotionally, spiritually, and relationally at peace. So there are really three dynamics relationally to the experience of shalom. It begins with our relationship to God, the upward dynamic, and then there's an internal dynamic, being at peace with yourself, within yourself, and then there's an external dynamic. Are you at peace? Are you at shalom, experiencing shalom in your relationships with others around you? We might even say it this way, that shalom is the life of blessing and peace that God wants all of us to experience and enjoy. But here's the challenge, right? If that's the ideal that we're aiming for, if that's the invitation we've been extended, the sad fact is that life often tries in a diversity of ways to rob us of shalom, the experience of shalom. So the invitation from God to have more of this experience is is offered to us, and yet there are things in life that constantly seem to be stealing our shalom. There's a gap between the good life of shalom that we're invited to experience and the reality that we're presently experiencing. And so the challenge is to close that gap and experience greater measures of the shalom God invites us into. Now, another insight that we've touched on, and I just want to remind you of this briefly from the outset this morning, is that seeking shalom is about remembering that Jesus walked in perfect shalom. So he's the model. He's the example. He's the one that we're trying to become more like. He's the one from which we draw inspiration. So if we genuinely want to become more like Jesus, then, then shalom should characterize our lives in increasing measure. It's the ongoing process of transformation toward Christ-likeness that increases our experience of God's shalom. So, for the next couple of weeks, I want to teach specifically on some biblical principles and practices, really, that that serve... uh, to help us experience greater shalom internally, internal peace, if you will. And uh, the question is, what, what can we do? Like, what, what are the things that we can do if we really want to increase this sense of internal peace or shalom, well-being? To experience greater peace of mind and soul, there are some practices that the Scriptures hold out to us that help us engage with God and experience the life and peace that he's offered us. So I want you to think with me this morning about one specific practice that's talked about in Scripture 
and that we have to make an effort to engage in if we want to experience the shalom that God offers us. It's the practice of rest. Rest. It's reflected in the title of the message here, True Sabbath Rest. Just think about that word for a minute and let it conjure up some images in your mind. What is rest for you? Is it, you know, kicking back on a porch with your feet up, reading a good book or reading the Bible? Is it, you know, maybe it's a hammock instead of a porch chair, or maybe it's, a, uh, maybe it's laying on the beach or taking a walk through the woods? What comes to mind when you think of rest? What experience of rest is most inviting to you? and compelling? What do you find rejuvenates your soul? Rest is an idea that's not unfamiliar to most of us, and yet I think we'd have to admit, right, as Americans, that it's also something that we don't tend to highly value, at least here in America, because we generally value hard work. We value hard work, and for that reason, we're often reluctant, I think, to embrace the value of rest. Here's a comic strip that illustrates a bit of the challenge that we all face. You look tired, Frank. What's the problem? Work! I have a dozen part-time jobs. I need to quit a few. Well, you could leave the Renaissance Fair. I would get more rest, not working the night shift. I know it's a groaner. I could quit the concrete work too. Go ahead. Throw in the trowel. And I suppose I could also leave the pest control job. That's it, Frank. No more Mr. Mice Guy. Okay. I'm, I'm trying just to, just to loosen you up a little bit. It's not working very well, but... Hang with me. So, yeah, it's a silly cartoon, right? And yet, it, isn't there some painful truth represented in this comic, right? Many people around us, and perhaps a good many of us as well, believe that we need to continue to work harder and harder to achieve more of the good life. Here's an honest admission from one blogger that writes on this subject. She says, I used to think that the word rest was a cuss word. I knew it existed, but I figured rest was what you did only after everything else was done. Rest was a reward for productivity. You see what's wrong with that mindset? So friends, what I want you to see this morning is that resting in the peace of God doesn't mean quitting your job altogether, although that might be appealing at times, and it doesn't mean necessarily finishing your work and getting everything else done, because honestly, that'll never happen. What it means is making some effort to work less and rest more. 
so that you consistently take time to allow the peace of God to refill and refuel your life. Let me put it another way. We might, we might try embracing what Scripture talks about, and here in Hebrews 4 is a classic example, what Scripture talks about as the Sabbath principle. The Sabbath principle. This is the heart of what I want to focus on with you this morning. I want to talk with you about a principle of Scripture that's represented consistently through the Word of God, but it has different applications. And there are three specific applications of this principle that are mentioned, referenced, highlighted just in Hebrews 4. So let's start with the basic principle itself. This is what I might define as the Sabbath principle. To experience true personal shalom, we need to prioritize rest from our work. Rest from our work results in greater shalom. Now, as I've said, there are three different applications of this principle, and I'm going to spell them out for you and talk about each one in turn. But let's just begin here for a moment with Hebrews chapter 4, verses 9 through 11. Look at these words from Hebrews 4 and think about this concept of Sabbath rest and how it reflects the Sabbath principle. Paul says in at the end of our passage from Hebrews 4, 9 through 11, there remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from their works just as God did from his. Let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest so that no one will perish by following their example of disobedience. So, Maybe, as I read this passage earlier, verses 1 through 11, you noticed that it's actually a little difficult to follow along. It's a bit confusing because of the interplay of these three different applications of the concept of rest that are all referenced in Hebrews 4. What I want to try to do for you is to sort those out, to disentangle them, so that you can understand what the author of Hebrews is really inviting you to experience with these words. But at the end of the passage here, let's begin with this, right? There's an admonition here. There's an invitation here. Did you see it? Do you hear it? Let us therefore make every effort to enter God's rest. Now, this is a bit ironic if you stop to think about it, right? Because There is indeed a Sabbath rest for the people of God, and the author of Hebrews here is saying we should make every effort to enter that rest. So it's kind of ironic, right? You have to strive to rest. How does that work? Well, the idea here is that rest doesn't come easy or naturally for us. We are always inclined to work harder, to do more, to take care of business. The idea here is simply that peace doesn't come easy. We actually have to strive to prioritize it. We have to make some effort to experience it. 
Now, here's an important thing to consider as well. You've all heard, I presume, right, the old acronym that's reflected on tombstones around the globe, R-I-P, which stands for Rest in Peace. What's interesting about that is that it suggests something that's true, but not completely true. You see, the idea is that resting in peace can only be accomplished when you die. And yet, what the Scripture invites us to is an experience of resting in peace even before we die. Certainly, resting in the perfect peace of God, the shalom of God, is the experience that we're looking forward to when Jesus returns and when we go to be with him. That is what the Bible describes as perfect peace, perfect shalom. But in the meantime, is it impossible to experience any rest? Is it, is it impossible to experience any peace? No. There's an invitation in Scripture to begin to experience more and more of this reality that God invites us to, resting in the peace of God. In fact, if we really want to learn the value of the Sabbath principle, though I'm not advocating that we should literally observe the Sabbath, and I'll talk more about that in just a moment, I do think that there are some really good things we can learn from the example of our Jewish brothers and sisters with regard to how they observe the Sabbath. So let's think about this because this is really the first point of application of the Sabbath principle that I'm describing. A couple years ago, uh, when my wife and I were able to visit Israel, one of the fascinating experiences was to see how life among the Jewish people comes to a standstill on Friday night. I mean, go to any other big city in the world, particularly in America, right? And life just explodes on Friday night. Everything begins to, you know, like there's so much to do. That's the pinnacle of the week. Everybody wants to go out and have fun. But in Israel, in Jerusalem, everything shuts down on Friday night. It's exactly the opposite. Because every observant Jewish family is going home to celebrate Shabbat, the Sabbath. A typical Shabbat Shalom, which means Sabbath peace, begins to be experienced Friday afternoon in the home as the woman of the family is preparing the evening meal, which will be enjoyed by the whole family together. And then, just before the sun sets and the new day officially begins, as it does in Judaism, um, the preparations are completed, everyone gathers around the table, the candles are lit, the prayers are spoken, the songs are sung, the meal is shared, readings of Scripture proceed. And from that point on Friday evening until about 26 hours later on Saturday evening, the day is given to resting in God's presence. If you're familiar with it, you can perhaps picture the scene from Fiddler on the Roof where the family gathers at the table 
and sings the Shabbat prayer. If you're not familiar with it, let me play it for you just because it's a great image to think about the Shabbat principle. protect and defend you. May he always shield you from shame. May you come to be in Israel a shining name. May you be like Ruth and like Esther. them from the strangers ways. May God bless you and grant you long May life. the Lord fulfill our Sabbath prayer for you. May God make you good mothers and wives. Husbands who will care for you. May the Lord protect and defend you. Every Friday afternoon and throughout the day on Saturday, you'll hear it spoken from one to the next. It's Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. In other words, it's a wish. It's a blessing. It's as if you're saying, may the peace of God fill your life this Sabbath day. And I offer that to you because... I want you to think about the example that's set for us and what we can learn from it by the way that the Jewish people have, for years now, observed the Sabbath. 
Now, where did this practice first begin? Let me give you a little bit of historical and biblical background here, and I'm going to just kind of peel through some things rather quickly. I don't want to spend a lot of time on these points, but they're important for us as we think about this concept and how it applies in our own lives. So the first thing that we have to understand here is that the practice of prioritizing rest began with God himself resting after the work of creation. We see this reflected in our text from Hebrews 4, verse 4. For somewhere he has spoken about the seventh day in these words. On the seventh day, God rested from all his works. God rested. What a concept that is. Now, I don't want you to think necessarily that it's as if God was tired, that he needed a day off. That wouldn't quite be accurate, right? For the omnipotent master of the universe to get tired and need a day off doesn't quite add up. What I want you to understand here is that God took a day of rest so that he could reflect on what he'd already done, what he'd already accomplished, and how good it was. And so we see in the account of creation, particularly Genesis 2, 1 to 3, we find this description of God observing the Sabbath rest. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. By the seventh day, God had finished the work that he'd been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it, he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. Now, again, I don't need to spend a lot of time on this point, but it's important for us to recognize that, that rest was God's idea, not man's. It began with him. He instituted it. And then he commanded that his people observe the same principle. So God practiced it first, and then he commanded man to practice it by following his example. This means rest is a good and godly thing to do. It's his idea for our benefit and for our blessing. And that means it has supreme value for our lives, right? If God says, hey, here's a great idea. This will really help you. Who are we to say, ah, that's crazy. I don't want to do that. So recognize then that the idea of rest, the practice of rest, is a good and godly idea that God himself has demonstrated for us. That's the beginning point. Now let's talk about the first application of the Sabbath principle that I shared with you a few moments ago. I want you to understand with me that, that the application of this principle in its most literal form has to do with the keeping of the Sabbath as a part of the Mosaic law, the old covenant. So application number one amounts to this. God commanded his people to experience rest by keeping the Sabbath as part of the Mosaic covenant. Hebrews 4, 9 and 10 references this. There remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from their works just as God did from his. 
Do you happen to know now when and why God first asked his people to observe this practice, to honor the Sabbath day? Anybody know? Does it come to mind? Any of you Bible scholars out there? might surprise you, actually, to recall that this principle was instituted even before the Israelites arrived at Mount Sinai. Right? We all know, of course, that it's part of the Ten Commandments. It's one of the Ten Commandments. We'll get to that in just a moment. But even before they get to Mount Sinai, and this is significant, God is teaching his people this principle. And there's a significant reason for it. It comes to us in Exodus 16, the occasion of which is that the Israelites are learning from God how to depend on his provision for their lives as they wander in the wilderness. They have nothing to eat. And God promises bread from heaven, manna. Here's how the stories were counted in Exodus 16. Then the Lord said to Moses, I will rain down bread from heaven for you. The people are to go out each day and gather enough for that day. In this way, I will test them and see whether they will follow my instructions. On the sixth day, they are to prepare what they bring in, and that is to be twice as much as they gather on the other days. And then skipping down a bit further to verses 21 through 30, each morning, everyone gathered as much as they needed, and when the sun grew hot, it melted away. On the sixth day, they gathered twice as much, two omers for each person, and the leaders of the community came and reported this to Moses. And he said to them, this is what the Lord commanded. Tomorrow is to be a day of Sabbath rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. So bake what you want to bake and boil what you want to boil, save whatever's left and keep it until morning. So they saved it until morning, as Moses commanded, and it did not stink or get maggots in it. Eat it today, Moses said, because today is a Sabbath to the Lord. You will not find any of it on the ground today. Six days you are to gather it, but on the seventh day, the Sabbath, there will not be any. Nevertheless, some of the people went out on the seventh day to gather it, but they found none. Then the Lord said to Moses, how long will you refuse to keep my commands and my instructions? Bear in mind that the Lord has given you the Sabbath. That is why on the sixth day he gives you bread for two days. Everyone is to stay where they are on the seventh day. No one is to go out. And so the people rested on the seventh day. Now, this begins to teach us some really important concepts about observing the idea, the Sabbath principle, this experience of rest and peace that God invites us into. What you have to hear and see here at work here is that, that Shabbat, Sabbath, is a day of rest and spiritual enrichment for the Israelites. In fact, the word Shabbat comes literally from the root of the three consonants, Shin, Beit, Tav, and together it means to cease, to end, to rest. Literally, the word Sabbath or Shabbat means to rest. It's not necessarily the seventh or doesn't mean seven. It means to rest.
So this weekly observance of Sabbath was a way for the Israelites to learn how to trust in God's provision and how to rest from their labor. He asked them specifically, this is what I want you to do, right? You're going to go out on on Friday, the day before the Sabbath. You're going to collect twice as much manna as you would normally so that come Saturday, come Sabbath, you don't have to go out because there's not going to be anything there for you on that day. You've got to trust me. I'm going to give you what you need on Friday so that you can just relax on Saturday and not have to go out to collect more manna. Now think about this. What God is asking his people to do is to prioritize rest. That's the principle, the basic principle here. I don't want you to get bogged down in the, in the specifics of whether it has to be on Saturday. We'll talk about that in just a moment. But, but the basic idea is God's saying rest is important to you. Rest is good for you. Rest is healthy. Rest is helpful. At the most basic level, that's the idea of observing the Sabbath. Now, there's more because all of it's symbolic, as we'll see shortly. But at the most basic level, what the Sabbath principle communicates to us is that God wants us to prioritize rest. In fact, this practice, of course, got codified in the Mosaic Law when Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the Ten Commandments. This was one of the ten. And interestingly, it was the only one that was a ritual commandment, not a moral commandment. It's not a moral imperative to keep the Sabbath. It's a ritual imperative. It's part of worship, in a sense. It's a little different than the other laws in the Ten Commandments. Here's what Moses was instructed to convey to the people of God. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that's in them, but he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Now, the obvious question, right, that you're probably all wondering about, the elephant in the room, are we still bound to observe this commandment? Are we meant to never work on Saturdays specifically? And the answer is no. We're not actually bound to observe this commandment in the same way that the Jewish people did and still do. The principle still applies, but we're not bound to the commandment itself. And here's proof. There are several other references I could point you to, but for the sake of time, the most significant one in the New Testament is Colossians 2, verses 16 and 17. Here's what Paul writes, and you have to understand the history behind all this goes right back to the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15, where there was a large discussion and debate about what rules... Old Testament laws, the new Gentile converts to Christianity should be expected to observe. And there were very few that they came out with. 
right? You can read Acts 15 and review that story. So Paul here later in Colossians 2 is writing to the church at Colossa, and here's what he says. Listen to this and how it applies to the Sabbath principle. Do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. The reality is found in Christ. In other words, what Paul's saying is the whole principle of observing the Sabbath day was a shadow of something greater yet to come. It was a symbol of something greater yet to come. So what this means for us then is that that the principle of rest still applies, but the legal requirement of observing that on the Sabbath day is no longer expected of all those who follow Jesus. The Sabbath, Shabbat Shalom specifically, was a shadow of something greater yet to come. The greater reality is found in Christ. And that's where we're going. I'll talk about that in just a few moments. So here then is where the the concept of rest, entering God's rest and experiencing the peace and rest that he offers us gets a little bit more complicated because it's layered. It's multifaceted. So application number two from Hebrews 4 and from other places in Scripture has to do with the Israelites entering the promised land a place of rest and peace. Maybe you'll recall some of the stories, some of the promises that were made. They had to take the land. They had to overcome their adversaries and enemies in the land with God's help through faith in God and trust in God's provision. And the promise of God was that if they were faithful to do that, as he instructed them, they would find rest and peace in the promised land. So God invited his people to experience resting in him as they entered and possessed the promised land. This is where we begin to see the idea that the observance of God's Sabbath rest represents something greater than just what happens on Saturdays. Even for the people of Israel, there was a a sense that, that resting in the peace of God was to be purposefully practiced on the Sabbath day but that it's actually something much bigger, much broader than that. It's not as if Saturday is the only day of the week on which they can experience resting in God's peace. So in Hebrews 4, then, we find a couple of distinct references to a psalm, Psalm 95 specifically. And there's this peculiar story that takes us from Psalm 95 all the way back to Exodus 17. Now think about this. Think about the significance of this. And honestly, this has never struck me until I just studied it out this week, preparing for this message. Exodus 16 is the story of the manna. The people of God are told to trust in God for his provision of daily bread. And they're instructed not to collect any bread on the Sabbath day. They learn through this experience how to trust in God's provision and how to rest And then you know what happens in Exodus 17, the very next chapter, the very next story? They're in a place called Rephidim. 
and they begin to complain. They begin to grumble. And they, and they begin to go after Moses, basically. Moses, okay, we've got bread. That's nice. But now we're thirsty. We need water. Where's the water, Moses? Get us some water. We're thirsty. Where's this God that's supposed to be so faithful to us? How could he take us out here in the, in the wilderness and then not give us the water we need to drink? What kind of God is that? So what happens in Exodus 17, right on the heels of God teaching his people how to trust him and rest in him, is that they begin to complain and rebel. They fail to trust. They fail to believe. They fail to go to God and look to God and wait for God as their provider. So God's people, fresh from the experience of receiving his instructions about observing the Sabbath and trusting him to provide food for them, fail to trust him for water. And the place, the, the place literally was called Rephidim, but it earned a couple of nicknames that are referred to in Psalm 95. Meribah, which means quarreling, and Massah, which means testing. So in Exodus 16, God is testing his people. In Exodus 17, the people are testing God. We could read the whole story from Exodus 17, but for the sake of time, I'll skip over that and just take you to Psalm 95, where the story is described and referred back to. David writes this in verse, Psalm 95, the end of the psalm. I believe it's verses 7 through 11. Today, if only you would hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did at Meribah, as you did that day at Massah in the wilderness, where your ancestors tested me. They tried me, though they had seen what I did. And for 40 years, I was angry with that generation. I said, there are people whose hearts go astray, and they have not known my ways. So I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. They shall never enter my rest. You see, the key insight from these verses is that the Israelites refused to trust in God's provision. They hardened their hearts. They were filled with unbelief. They, they failed to respond to the voice of God, the instructions of God. And as a result, an entire generation died in the wilderness and never got to enter the promised land. So what's referred to here as the place of God's rest, the promise of peace or shalom, is entry and possession of the promised land. This is application number two of the Sabbath principle. The first and most basic application is observance of the Sabbath itself. But the principle is broadened out to suggest here and in other places that, that when the Israelites entered the promised land, they were invited to experience the reality of God's rest and peace. But it would only be done by trusting in him. So the book of Hebrews then uses a creative comparison to emphasize to its largely Jewish audience that the weekly Sabbath was really a reminder of more than the fact that God was 
the Israelites' creator and the one who delivered them from slavery in Egypt, it was about reminding them that they should continue to trust in God and believe him for his provision. And so this whole uh, dynamic is described, if you back up even into Hebrews chapter 3 and then on into Hebrews 4. What we're seeing here reflected in these references to Psalm 95 is the unbelief of the Israelites, their failure to trust God and their failure, therefore, to experience the rest and peace that God offered them. And that brings us then, last but not least, to application number three. With the few minutes we have left, let me wrap this up by just explaining to you that really what the author of Hebrews is inviting us into is an experience of resting in the peace of God that is still available to us. Application number three, God still invites his people to rest in him by drawing from the life and peace of Jesus. So in other words, what we find described in Hebrews 4, and even back into 3 a bit as well, is the notion that Jesus is really the personification of Sabbath rest. He is, after all, as the Gospels tell us, the Lord of the Sabbath. Jesus is our Sabbath rest. In him, we find rest from all of our works. So Hebrews 4, 1 to 3, just think about these verses again now in the context of this third and final application regarding faith in Jesus. Therefore, since the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us be careful that none of you be found to have fallen short of it. For we also have had the good news proclaimed to us just as they did, just as the Israelites did, in an earlier form, but the message they heard was of no value to them because they did not share the faith of those who obeyed. Now, we who have believed enter that rest. We who have believed in Jesus enter the rest that God offers us. And then continuing on, Hebrews 4, 6 through 11, at the end of the passage, The same idea, reiterated again. Therefore, since it still remains for some to enter that rest, and since those who formerly had the good news proclaimed to them did not go in because of their disobedience, God again set a certain day, calling it today. This he did when a long time later he spoke through David, as in the passage already quoted. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. What's this about? Well, let me me just pause a minute and explain. What the author of Hebrews is saying is essentially this. Don't make the same mistake. Don't make the same mistake the Israelites made. They were invited to trust in God's provision and to rest in that reality. But they failed. They couldn't believe it. They didn't believe it. So don't make the same mistake. If you hear God speaking to you, if you hear God inviting you into an experience of shalom, receive it. Respond to it with faith. Say yes to the invitation of God. Hebrews continues, verse 8, For if Joshua had given them rest, 
right, by entering the promised land, God would not have spoken later about another day yet to come, another type of rest, another degree of rest. There remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from their works, just as God did from his. You know what the supreme application of that principle is? You can't work your way into right relationship with God. You have to rest in his grace. So the whole point of the Sabbath principle was to point us toward the work of Jesus on our behalf. The reality is that we can only experience and rest in the peace God offers us by trusting in Christ. He's the personification of the Sabbath principle. We have to stop working to attain some kind of righteousness with God or from God and rest in the work of Christ. I mean, it's, it's the essence of the gospel. What we're being invited into here is an experience of true Sabbath rest. Rest for the soul. Rest for the weary. Right? Because it's hard to continue to try to be right with God through your own works. It just doesn't, it doesn't cut it. It gets old. You can't do it. The only thing that works, if you really want to experience the peace of God in your soul, deep in your soul, is to receive it from Christ. So, in this sense, then, the Sabbath retains some of its old covenant meanings, right, that identify God's uh, specially sanctified people, the people of God, and, and points them back to God as, as their creator. There's, there's a sense in which all three of these levels of, of Sabbath rest speak to us about different aspects of what God's invited us to experience. That's the best way I can, I can think of to sum it up. Spiritual rest for the soul, for the weary, begins in a, in a very practical way by just stopping your work, taking some time, prioritizing the value of rest, whether it's on Saturday or Sunday or Monday, whatever day works for you. But then what God's really inviting you into is a relationship with him through faith in Christ where you can lay down all the burdens of your soul, stop working to try to please God, and rest in the provision of Christ. He is the bread of life, the daily bread, the manna from heaven. He is the water of life, the living water. So the book of Hebrews then is, is basically weaving together these three different themes of rest, the rest promised to Israel from its enemies, the physical rest of a weekly Sabbath observance, and the spiritual rest that we find through faith in Christ. All three are being woven together and, and speak to us in different ways about the experience, the invitation that God has given us. Let me take you in closing then to the invitation as Jesus himself put it. Because I think this really sums up um, the concept that I'm, that I'm hoping 
you're hearing me communicate this morning. This is the promise of God from the lips of Jesus himself. Matthew 11. Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you've hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for this is what you were pleased to do. All things have been committed to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Friends, that's, that's the promise of God. That's the invitation of God. That's the word of the Lord Jesus himself to each and every one of us. Come to me. If you need rest, come to me. You'll find it when you come to me. If you come to me, will you trust me for it? I hope you will. Let's pray.